Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to uh, John chapter 7. We're going to be starting in verse 40, working down through 52, and we're just going to be kind of working from one verse, and it will be verse 49, so maybe put that on your radar as we go from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along. John 7, 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, this is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? And they're wondering about the scriptures, the historicity, the prophetic uh, credibility. They're, they're just wondering who this Christ is. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Well, that's interesting. That's in fact what happened. So there was a division among the people because of him. And isn't there a division today because of Jesus? Is, is there anything different? Is there anything new? People are still divided over Jesus. Just when you're at the water cooler, just start talking about Jesus at work. <laughs> hey, what's your favorite thing about Jesus? <laughs> what do you like about Jesus? Um, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid their hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests of the Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? Remember, they sent, to, they sent him to take him. And they, they replied, that the officers answered and said, Never a man spoke like this man. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. But how humiliating would it be for these trained officers to enforce the will of their commanding officers, and they were just sent for one task, and they're trained in this task. They go there, they're armed, they could, you know, seize Jesus, um, and what do they take, what, what do you call it, T uh, put him under custody, and when they start hearing his words, they, they kind of forget why they were there in the first place. And then they leave, and then they ask him, well, where is Jesus? You were sent to go get him. And they said, we've never heard anyone speak like this guy. We don't know what he said, but whatever. Remember Jesus in John chapter 6, he says, um, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He said, the flesh profits nothing, but the words that I say unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So he's speaking life-giving words, spiritual words, the same words that said, let there be light, let there be earth, let there be water, let there be birds, let there be trees. That word from heaven became flesh, and that, that living word is speaking that powerful word because he is the word. And they heard it, the same word that let them be come into existence, right? The same word that said, let's create man in our image. That same word was standing in front of these officers speaking whatever he was saying, and they were so smitten by those words, whatever they were, they forgot to take Jesus hostage and failed in their duties. Well, um, verse 47, then answered the, then the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Like, has he put some trick on you, some spell on you? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knows not the law are cursed. And we're going to talk about that. The title of the message today is The Law is a Curse. But what they're saying is 
Because these guys do not know the law, they're cursed. But is that really the fact? We'll look into that. Nicodemus, this is interesting. John, the human penman under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is really the only one that, that, that mentions Nicodemus. And he mentions him in three different times and in three different circumstances, giving us three different kind of dimensional views looking at this person, Nicodemus. We wouldn't know anything about Nicodemus if it weren't for the Apostle John or the Holy Spirit. Does our lead, now look at what he's saying. Now Nicodemus says unto them, remember Nicodemus was in chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night in secret, not, not wanting anyone to know that he was inquisitive about Jesus. And so remember, Jesus spoke to him about how being born again in the kingdom of God. And he says, you don't know these things, Nicodemus? You don't know, you don't know these things? Aren't you a teacher of the Jews and you don't know these things? Now, he's standing up and he's teaching the Jews because he is a teacher and a ruler. And he asks them, he says, does not our law uh, judge any man before it hears him and know what he does? So he's, he's kind of activating logic and justice and equity. He's like, why, why would we jump to conclusions? Even our law, you know, because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established is what the law says. And so Nicodemus is just pointing that out to them. And they answered and said unto him, Are you also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. They're trying to look for a loophole. Jesus can't be that prophet. And every man went to his own house because they were divided. They, they couldn't come to a conclusion. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Let's pray and then we'll look into this. Lord, I just pray that you'd encourage us and then guide us through your word. Uh, you, we know that you're the living word. You've inspired these words and the written word and the Holy Spirit just unlocks the truth. We're not revealing anything new. We're not discovering anything new, uh, but teach us things about you, Lord, how we could relate to you and how we could relate to others as we just live life and we go about our, our business. Yeah, I know you go with us because you're in us. And Lord, just help us to see what it means to just be in union with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if we look back at John 7.43, it says there is a division over Christ. And in John 9.16, this isn't anything new. It's like when Jesus shows up, he usually rolls into town on the Sabbath, and then all Hades breaks loose, right? <laughs> but, therefore, said some of the Pharisees in John 9.16, this man is not of God because he keeps not the Sabbath day. And others said, how can, this man, or, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division amongst them. Jesus kind of always brought this tension, this not negative tension, but the way they were looking at the, at the thing. They're like, well, he's never done anything wrong, yet he seems to be doing miracles that are from God, yet he's healing people on the Sabbath, yet the Sabbath, even the law teaches us that, you know, it's okay to have mercy on your animal uh, if it falls into the ditch on the Sabbath. And what is better, to save life or to lose life on the Sabbath? But yet this guy is going against all tradition. He's going against the grain. Um, and so they were divided. John ten nineteen says, There was a division, therefore, again, amongst the Jesus for these saints. Based on what Jesus said, based on what he did, uh, they were just super confused. They did not know how to handle this Jesus character, this carpenter's son, this guy that comes out of left field. 
this one born of a virgin, the one that Gabriel said would go, was going to come, right? Announced that the Virgin Mary would be blessed above all women, that she would have the seed, the promised seed that was way back, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, way back, Genesis 3.15. The seed, the promised one, the one that they're always looking for, showed up, and they don't know how to handle him. Let's look at Nicodemus. In John uh, 7.50, uh, John leaves us a unique progression of Nicodemus growing in grace. Now, I mentioned before in John 3, first he came by secret at night, and he hears about the new birth grace message that Jesus gave, right? Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus reasons with him logically like he does in John 7 with the Jews. He's just kind of that type of mind. And so Jesus uh, teaches him that you need a first birth, right? Apollo, Nevaeh, what, wait, um, what's the new baby's name? Who? Hunter? Hunter. So you're born one time, and then you're born again the second time when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith through grace. And so that's the, that's the message that Jesus was teaching Nicodemus that night because he didn't want anyone to know that he wanted to have a conversation with this man that no one ever spoke like, that was said to be born of a virgin, to have been the promised Messiah. And so he wanted to see him, and he wanted to talk to him. And he didn't actually get what he wanted to hear, but he got a message from Jesus. Evidently, this resonated with Nicodemus because here we see him kind of coming to some sort of a defense of Jesus. Wait, 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 you guys. What does our law teach? Do we just jump to conclusions without hearing someone? Or do we, you know, do we hear the witnesses and the evidence and then look at it from kind of a judicial point of view? And so he kind of comes to this defense. So it's kind of like he comes to Jesus at night. It's not fully out of the closet. It's kind of like midday. Um, and then... At the end, you see in John chapter 19, if we'll look there, I think it might be up there. Apollo's just learning how to say amen in church. That's all that is. He's totally agreeing with the message. He's trying to encourage me. Um, amen, Apollo. But look at John 19.39. And there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now you see Nicodemus. So he came to Jesus at night, kind of covert, right? Somewhat overt. Hey, you guys, let's not jump to conclusions with Jesus. Now, and at Jesus' funeral, he's out of his own resources, openly supporting and showing his you know, um, acceptance of Jesus. You know what I learned from John's point of view of Nicodemus? That we're all growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Not at any one point did Jesus condemn Nicodemus for being at the stage of life in his faith for where he was. You know the takeaway for me? Don't be so hard on yourself. And don't be so hard on other people. There's some people that come into church, and they don't even want to be acknowledged. Think about that. I've made the mistake of pointing people out one time, I remember. Um, 
there's a, a young Mormon person that came to church one time, and I said, hey, I want you guys to make um, so-and-so in the back feel welcome. And she got up and said, nope, no thanks. I don't want anything. <laughs> okay. I think they're doing a report from BYU, you know, like what Christian churches do. And she didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but that's where that person was. Nicodemus was that person, that religious person that came to Jesus. That's where he was. Kind of open later on and then fully open. And so all I'm saying is we're all, we should all be growing. If you're still secretive, 007 Christian, or, you know, um, that's okay. Uh, you can't remain that way till you die. I mean, you've, you have to accept Christ at one point. Um, but we're all kind of growing in the grace, and, the, and we're probably, I'm not saying this is a formula, but if you were to look at kind of three stages from Nicodemus, and John's the only one that gives us those stages, and I think it's important, all Scripture is given by inspiration so that we could learn from it, we could learn from these stages of Nicodemus of his spiritual progression and growth. And I think us too, if we look at where we're at, you don't need to be so hard on yourself. You're growing. It's God's good pleasure both to will and to do of his good pleasure in and through your life, right? He, you're at work. He that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But there is a division over the law. John seven forty nine. And these people who do not know the law are under God's curse anyways. So what they're basically saying is that because they don't know the law um, and were the people who were not trained in the law, um, as the Pharisees and Sadducees and the priesthood were, that these people were cursed. They were cursed people because they didn't, they didn't know the law. The irony of that statement is to the contrary. It is so much the antithesis of what they were saying. The, the reality is, is those who are under the law are the ones that are under the curse. That's the reality. Not that if you know the law, if you really knew the law, you would know that the law is a curse, but they're saying, well, because they don't know the law, they don't know Jesus, and therefore they're under the curse. They don't really know where the Messiah really comes from. It can't be this guy um, we have Moses in the law, and we have all of these things, and so they don't know what we know, so therefore they're under the curse. The opposite was true. So being under the Lord is freedom. Being under the law is bondage. There is still a division uh, over the law amongst Christians even today in churches. The question is this, are we still under it? Are we under part of it? Well, what is it? If I keep it, will I be blessed? If I fail to keep it, will I be cursed? What are the consequences of not keeping the law of Moses? Is it an all or nothing proposition? Or can I just pick the laws that I like and avoid the ones that I don't like and can't keep? Or if I put myself under the law, am I obligated to keep the whole thing? James has something to say about that. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend at one point, he is guilty of all. So you can't cherry-pick the law. It's a system of 613 commands divided by do's and don'ts. And there's some that you could probably keep. There's some that you definitely probably don't know. Um, and so the question is, you know, is it like just some, most, or all? Well, the way God set it up is it's an all-or-nothing proposition. I like what J. Vernon McGee has to say about this. He says this, I'd love to do his accent, but I can't. 
You cannot draw out of the law just the things you like. You cannot leave out the principles or the penalties um, and a great deal of the detail that you do not like. You must take the whole law or nothing. Amen. It's an all or nothing proposition. You can't just hijack. That's what the Galatians were doing. They were just picking some of the laws and avoiding the other ones, or maybe they were not doing it by ignorance. Therefore, watering down the law, which makes the law seem impotent, which it's not. The law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's powerful. But to water it down and to dilute it by just keeping 50% of it or 25% of it, it makes the law seem insignificant, and it loses kind of its power and purpose. So, do we serve Moses and Jesus? kind of in a hybrid of the Old and the New Testament at the same time? What would, what would make, if we were to serve two masters, first of all, you'd love the one and hate the other, but you'd also be considered a double-minded person as unstable in all their ways. The law is a curse. Why would we even want to be held or put under a curse anyways? Let me give you a background to the curse thing because I think it's easier said than maybe maybe learned. And so let's just kind of learn from the law. Remember, the law was given for our learning, but not for our living. So let's learn from the law. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but to turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. So God himself is putting out a blessing and a curse. Turn with me back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 27. There's too much here to read. We're not going to read all of it, but I want you to be at least geographically familiar with where this is at in your Bible. So the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Penta meaning five. So that's where we find the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. Not so much in Genesis, right? Um, But that's considered the books that Moses was inspired to write. Now, Deuteronomy is a summary book of what what had went on before. And in this, he also, I think it's in Deuteronomy 5, you'll find the Ten Commandments, but Exodus chapter 20 is also the Ten Commandments. Um, but the, the law is not just the Ten Commandments. There's like 603 more. And they were to write all of these, incidentally, on stone, not only the Ten, but all of the law on stone before you enter into um, the Promised Land. It was to be written on stone. But you'll notice the conditionality of the Old Covenant is found in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. I find it that people that try to live partially under the law are very unfamiliar with the conditionality of the law. And this is what waters the law down because it's like, well, I know I did this on the Sabbath and I know I I ate that on that day and I know I wore this kind of clothing with mixed fabric that other day and I know I did this on that feast day and I know I totally forgot that one feast and I know that I was supposed to build a flat rooftop on my house, but I mean... The cost of lumber during COVID, I mean, come on. Uh, I know, I know, I know. Um, and, and there's a lot of things maybe you don't know. 
But this is one thing that everyone needs to know. It's like when you sign, if you ever bought a car, which most of you probably have, and you had to get out a loan, and you're sitting there with the loan officer, and there's just pages and pages and pages, and you're like, just sign there, just sign there, sign there, sign there. You want to, like, read all the fine print, but you don't want to seem like a, you're dragging your feet or, like, you question him, like, what's this really say, you know? But you just sign it anyways. And I think most people, they just sign up for the law, and they don't read the fine print. And here's the fine print. Look at Deuteronomy 27, starting in verse 14. Or verse 13. And these shall stand upon Mount uh, Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man makes any graven image or molten image, an abomination of the Lord, works with his hands of the craftsmen. I'm going to kind of skim. Cursed be he that sets the light by his father or his mother. People shall say amen. Cursed be he that removes his neighbor's landmark. Uh, Verse 18. Cursed be he that makes the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say amen. And cursed be he that perverts the judgment of the stranger, the fireless. And I'm not saying these things are bad. The law is good and holy and just. We've got to keep that in mind. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law just points out there's something wrong with us. And here's the condition if you agree to go under the, the conditionality of the law. Cursed be he that lies with his father, his father's wife, because he uncovers his father's skirt. Cursed be your father if you wear a skirt, by the way. Um, Cursed be he that lies with any manner of beast. Um, that is a, that's, a, that's disgusting, bestiality, incest. This is all wrong stuff, by the way, right? This, no one's endorsing any of this. Uh, Cursed be he that lies with his sister, his daughter, his mother. Cursed be he that lies with his mother-in-law. Uh, Cursed be he that smites his neighbor secretly. Cursed be he that takes reward to slay the innocent person. Uh, for all you mercenaries out there. Cursed be he that confirms, here's the caveat, cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them. In other words, if there's anything that's missed, you're still cursed if you fail to do all the words of the law. And if you go on to uh, Deuteronomy 28, um, look at verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if you'll not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe to do all of his commandments and statutes which I command you this day, uh, that all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be the city, and cursed shall be your field. Cursed shall be your basket and your store. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your land, and the increase of your kind of flocks and sheep. Cursed be, uh, shall be when you comes in, and cursed be when you goes out. And the Lord shall send upon you cursing, vexation, rebuke, and all you set uh, for your hand to do until you be destroyed, until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings whereby you have forsaken me. And you could keep, you could go on until um, verse 68 when he, after he summarizes all of this, and the ultimate punishment God would do to the nation of Israel would pluck them out of the land. And they would be taken by, in this case he's referring to Egypt, but um, Daniel, in Daniel's day, uh, it was the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, and there was the Philistines, and there was the mosquito bites and the flea bites and the bug bites and all the Hittites and the Moabites. And it really didn't matter because if you disobeyed the Lord, he would send prophets 
And the prophets wouldn't add to the law. And this is very interesting. In the law, God canonizes it and said, you shall not add or take away from the law. Meaning, no one could come along and update it. What, when the law was done, it was done. That's why it was written in stone. Written in stone means it's done. It's finalized. There's no other versions to come. There's no updates to it. And so, when the prophets came, they reminded the Israelites, you guys swore to do what God said in the Old Covenant. If you don't, this is going to happen. Physical blessings, if you obey. Physical cursings, if you disobey. And the ultimate punishment was to be plucked off the land where they had wells that they didn't buy or dig, uh, houses that they didn't build. They had vineyards that they didn't plant. It was a place of God's blessing and grace if they obeyed the Lord. And if they did not, they were plucked out of the land. And you see that cycle repeated over and over and over again. Psalm 106 is a great chapter in the, in the Old Testament to summarize the cyclical patterns of the nation of Israel as they went through the blessings and cursings that they agreed upon, incidentally. So let's look at what Daniel has to say about this. Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to get to Daniel in depth in our Revelation series because Daniel and Revelation are very compatible. Yea, and all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside that they might not obey your voice. Therefore, the curse has been poured out on us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against the Lord. Jeremiah says this, and say to them, says, so says Jehovah, the God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. What's the covenant he's referring to? The old covenant that they agreed upon. They had agreed, they clicked agree, and now they're shocked because they didn't read the fine print? They clicked agree. When you signed, when you agreed to that loan, and you don't, you don't make your payments for four months in a row, and the repo man comes and, and uh, like hooks your car up and tows it away, and you're shocked because you didn't read? Why are you shocked? They told you if you don't pay your loan payment, your credit score is going to go down. You're going to get a loan the next time at like 30% interest, and they're going to take your car, and you need to get caught up and pay penalties and then pay the tow truck driver also. You didn't know that? because you didn't read it. Okay, that's all right. I love the way the Bible ends the Old Testament and the way the New Testament ends the New Testament. In Malachi 3.9, I pointed this out once before. I don't know if you, you remembered it. I know there's people here that weren't here when I pointed this out, but in uh, Malachi 3.9, you are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. And he later or earlier talked about holes with purses and they, had, they never were good with their money. But he, that's the last verse of the Old Testament. And it ends with the curse. Look at the last verse of the New Testament. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I don't think that's a coincidence that the last verse of the Old Covenant, which is based on a curse and a blessing, ends in curse. They've all sinned. We've all sinned. We all deserve a curse. We don't deserve blessing. We've all failed. That's the last verse of the Old Testament. Curse! Just a reminder. I think on your way out, like, remember, this whole thing was about blessing and cursing, but no one was able to do it. No one was able to keep the law. Curse! 
Last verse in the New Covenant, grace. You don't deserve this. No one deserves grace. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. But Jesus, with his great love, wherewith he loved us, he wanted to pour out grace to us. So I want to say this. Praise the Lord that we're not under the law and the curse, but we're under grace. John chapter 1 puts it this way. And of his fullness have we all received. You could just really soak in that truth. Of his fullness have we all received. Grace for grace. You've received grace for grace. That's a powerful statement. You... I believe grace is a person. In fact, I have a friend named Frank Friedman, um, great author, by the way. He's a pastor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, we taught that church, incidentally, um, organic life groups a while ago. My wife and I went out there. But he has an email address, grace is a person, and at such and such. And I've always loved that. And we've had long conversations about that. So rather than keeping grace as a concept or some like power force, he, he believes grace is a person. You receive Jesus to live for Jesus and to live from Jesus. Grace for grace. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, the person who is grace and truth, came by Jesus. And then Galatians says this to the people struggling with trying to live under Jesus and Moses at the same time. He tries to clear it up. He said, hey, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And for those of you that have received the Lord Jesus Christ, you are led by the Spirit and you are not under the curse of the law. Romans 6, 14 puts it this way. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law. And I think it's interesting how he substitutes the word sin and he makes it synonymous with the law. The law is not sin, but it does reveal sin. And he says, you're not, sin shall not have dominion over you. In fact, in chapter 7, he says, the law shall not have dominion over you. Um, but he says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And the question people always ask, okay, preacher, Christian, if you're telling us that we're not under the law of Moses, then you're just going to give people a license to sin. He says, what shall we say then? Because we're not under the law, but under grace? Shall we sin? God forbid. That's not grace, that's disgrace. And so he's saying that's not the way you should interpret you're not under the law. I've been watching videos lately about people racing. And I've been on the Autobahn. Um, but it, there's places in Las Vegas where you could rent cars. I think there's a Porsche place down the 405. I've always wanted to do this. You could rent a supercar, and I don't know the rules, but um, there's obviously no police officers. You know, it's a closed-circuit racetrack. And then if you're in the Autobahn, there's no speed limit sign. Okay, if you had a car that goes like 350 miles an hour, just because you could go 350 miles an hour, does that mean you should? You have the freedom to do that. But is that very smart? No. <laughs> right? You understand that like the confines of what, what we're saying here? Because you can, does it mean you should? Right? So if they legalize uh, heroin, for example, oh, it's, it's, it's legal. You should do it. Just because it's legal, should you? I mean, I'm just trying to just use some logic. Um, you can uh, jump off really high buildings. Should you? I'm just saying, just because you're not under, just because there's not a posted 
sign that says, you know, go 35, um, does that mean you should go 235? Uh, so I think God, with his spirit that he puts his life and his law in our inward parts, would lead us without the letter to have some sort of constraining uh, within internal guidance from the Lord himself that only leads us to love and to life. Um, and I want to I point this out. I'm, I quoted my friend David uh, last week. This is a different quote of his. He's got, he's got a few of them. And he said this to me one time. He said, the law cannot make you live righteously and grace will not make you live lawlessly. That is an ingenious quote. That's clever. And it's true. The law cannot make you live righteously. You know, the Bible says through the law is the knowledge of sin. The law, the more you try it, the more you, the more you realize how you fail. And so the law doesn't, it doesn't make you live righteously. It points out that you are unrighteous. Why? So the whole world would become guilty. In fact, it's not in my notes, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Um, just came to my mind here. Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 19. We know that whatsoever thing the law says, it says to them that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before uh, God. Right? It shows you your guilt. It doesn't remove it. It just points it out. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in the sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's not the knowledge of righteousness. It shows you that you're not righteous. He says that in this chapter. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I want you to pick up this last verse. Verse 27, where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And then you go into Romans 4, which you were going into uh, in Sunday school. But I wanted you to see that, that the, through the law is the knowledge of sin and unrighteousness. It doesn't show you that you're righteous. It shows you the opposite. And the reason for that is so that you would see your need for the Savior. And you would see that he is righteous, you are unrighteous. He is clean, you're unclean. He's holy, you're unholy. He's sinless, I'm a sinner. And then I need his righteous life because I can't get it. If there was a way to get righteousness, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, truly, it should have been by the law. He says, if there was any way to make yourself holy and acceptable to God, it would have been through the law. But through the, through the law is the knowledge of sin. It points out your defects. It doesn't fix them. It points out the problem. So, um, did we turn to Galatians? We were in Romans 3, but turn to Galatians 3, if you would. I, wanna, I want you to see this. Galatians 3. And we're really, maybe this is a, a lot of review uh, for some of you. But we're really getting to this next point. After we get into Galatians, we'll turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and then we'll be done. But it's, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that I really hope the work is done. Where there's a really, there's a connection there where you leave here and you're like, 
okay, that applies to me. That makes sense. Uh, I want to join the Lord in that. I want, I want to be about my father's business in that area. But before we get there, I want to show you this. Galatians 3 and verse 10. For as many as under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continues not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now we've, we've just, I don't know how many of the mouths of two or three witnesses we've got just this morning. But hopefully you're getting that the law is a curse, Right? Hopefully that you're, you're like, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, uh, all right, surrender, um, the Bible says that, mm-hmm. hopefully. So he says, you're under curse, especially if you don't continue in all of the things to do them. And he says in verse 11, but no man or woman is justified in the law of the sight of God, it's evident the just shall live by faith. The, and look at verse 12, and the law is not of faith. That's a key phrase. Because you know Hebrews 11.6 says, for without faith it is impossible to please God. And the law is not of faith. So if you're going to put yourself under the law, which is not of faith, it's all flesh because it's your performance, you can't please God because it's not of faith. And especially not faith in the one that wrote the law and pulled off the law. He was the law giver and the law liver. He lived it out. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And now we need to have faith in his finished work, not in what we could do for God, but what he's done for us. No one's justified. The just shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, but the man that does them or the woman shall live in them and under them. But verse 13, but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree or the cross, referring to the old covenant that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that's us, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And he said, whoever has the Spirit is not under the law. Same book. So I wanted you to see that. But this might agitate some people, as evidenced by this quote. Look at this. The law makes you mad because it tells you what to do. Grace makes you matter because it tells you that there's nothing that you can do. Think about that for a little bit. You don't like to be told what to do or when you're failing. But you know what rubs us even worse? Is when you tell that person that it's knocking on your door because they have a a mission to do. Everything you've done up until this point is worthless, dirty, filthy, rotten, sinful rags. And it's unclean. And it amounts nothing in the kingdom of God. Wait, what? I've been abstaining from Mountain Dew. I got a Starbucks gift card from my Gentile uncle for Christmas. and he, I haven't used it, but I wanted to. I'm referring to Mormons knocking on his door. that are, They're so proud of all the things that they're abstaining from. And you're telling them, well, we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. And, uh, you know, so grace comes along and tells you that there's nothing you could contribute. And that is an insult to our self-righteous, self-made person that's exalting themselves and promoting themselves into the kingdom of God. When you tell someone that there's nothing that they could contribute, it's all of Jesus and it has nothing to do with you, everything you've done to this point is worthless, that's, that's kind of hard to hear for someone that's maybe kind of proud about their contribution that they're making to the process of making themselves righteous. 
But just like the law is an all or nothing proposition, you're either 100% righteous or you're not. God doesn't take like hand sanitizer, 99.9% clean people. It's, it's all or nothing. And the only way you're going to get the all is if you get all of Jesus. Of his fullness have we all received. Well, we're not, uh, we're, we're not under the law, the old law, but it doesn't mean that we're lawless because we are under a new covenant and it's under, we're not under the, the law, but we're under the Lord. <clears throat> so being under the Lord, what, is that, what does that mean to us? What does that look like? Well, if, if it looks like this. We're ministers of life, not of death. We're ministers of grace, not of guilt. We're ministers of the Lord, not of the law of the Old Testament or of Moses. We are bondage breakers. We're not bondage keepers. We are liberators, and we're not the Lord's law enforcement agency, even though some of us feel like we've been deputized into that, right? <laughs> Turn with me to the last passage, and this is where... I wanted to do some work in this chapter a few weeks ago, uh, but it was too lengthy and I didn't have enough time. So I'm coming back to it because I really wanted to see this with you. It's meant so much to me. Hopefully, if you've read it before, I'm sure you have. Let's read it again and hopefully apply it to our lives under the context that we're not under the law, but we're under the Lord. We're not under the curse. We're under Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says this, Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's a really, 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 really good verse. It just hijacked out of it the context of 2 Corinthians 3, which is all about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Just that verse alone. If you're self-sufficient, what kind of sufficiency is that? This is Savior sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is that self-made man, that self-righteous person. And he's saying the opposite. He's like, we're not. And he said, he said this in Philippians 3 when he's talking about his testimony. If there's anyone that could be the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew of Jews, blameless of the law, would have been Paul. But now he's saying we're not sufficient of ourselves. We don't have self-sufficiency, law-keeping sufficiency. And he says in verse 6, Jesus, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, that's the old covenant, but of the spirit, that's the new covenant. For the letter, the old covenant, Moses kills, but the spirit, the new covenant, gives life. Now I want you to see this in verse 6. He's made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. When he uses this plural pronoun, he's not just saying him and the disciples. He's writing to the Corinthian church, the worst of the New Testament churches. And he's saying, look, guys, he told them in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, you've been sealed by the Spirit. You have a Spirit. He told them in other chapter 1 of the first uh, one, he's like, you have all of Jesus. Um, so he tells them our identity, and now he's given them their, their activity based on their identity, and it's this. We've all been made ministers of the New Covenant minister that row right there the people that are asleep and the people that are awake ministers people on their phones not on their phones ministers people that go to the bathroom all the time don't go to the bathroom time ministers <laughs> people people that want this to be over sooner than later ministers 
You're all made <laughs> ministers of the new covenant. So, verse 7, now, the minute, now if the ministry of death, what do you think that ministry of death is? What else? If you, were, if you were putting people under the constraints of the old covenant, which was happening to the Galatians, he said, who's bewitched you? Who tricked you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh and the keeping of the law? Who tricked you? Who put you under the spell? So if you, if you have a ministry of death, that's putting people under the curse of the law. That's why he says it's carved in letters of stone. But it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which um, was to be brought to an end. So, look, so the glory of the Old Covenant was glorious, but it's been superseded by the glory of the New Covenant. You guys ever see it in Napoleon Dynamite? So I was out uh, disc golfing, uh, maybe that's why it was on my mind, with my cousin and when I was in Tahoe um, a few months ago, and we're throwing disc golfs, we're throwing, and I'm not good at it. Um, uh, I had to borrow some, and, and he had his like a whole, you know, case. And he had, I had three, and he had like, here, try this one. He was just like, and um, he would get up with the suit and form. And he was really into it, really into it. But he wasn't going quite as far as he would like to most of the time. And so he'd say, oh, man, you know, I've been, I've been playing disc golf for 15 years. I hope, Mitch, if you hear this, I love you, and I'll play with you anytime. But he's like, I've been playing for 15, or I've been playing for 15 years. I remember, and he's, he lives in Tahoe, he's from there, and he's like, I used to clear that tree, that tree line over there, just go over it. And I was with my other cousin who's from uh, uh, Mission Viejo, and uh, I looked at him, and I said, Uncle Rico. And <laughs> he was laughing because in Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico was an old football player. He's like in his late 30s or 40s, and he lives in a van, and he has barbecues out in the field, and his cousin would come over, and he'd be like, man, I, if I could, back in the day, I could throw this football over that mountain. And he's like bragging about how strong his arm was, and the, like, you could throw the football over the mountain. It was like my cousin. He was like, man this disc would go over those tree lines. And I'm like, Uncle Rico, Uncle Rico. And uh, my cousin Hoover knew what I was talking about. So it became a standing joke. My point is this. Their reference was back to the old glory days, right? Like your old glory days when you used to be so rad in high school. Ooh, but now you can't do it anymore. <laughs> yep. Um, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like there was glory in the Old Covenant when it was the only thing going on. It was a reflection of the righteousness of God and it showed our unrighteousness. But that's fading away. Why? He says, um, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, you need to catch that word, ministry of condemnation. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. 
Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more uh, will what is permanent have glory. What's permanent? Why is the new covenant, the New Testament, permanent? And why will it not be outdone by a third covenant? By a newer covenant? Why is that? I, I always told the Mormons, by the way, they're like, another testament of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, interesting. Because without the death of a testator, there can't be a testament. Are you saying someone else has to die, be buried, and rise again to have another Another, another testament? <laughs> what could make the new covenant fade in glory and something exceed the new covenant in glory the way the New Testament did the Old Testament? Nothing, because Jesus' death was final. It was forever. His death was final. It wasn't forever because he rose from the dead never to die again, never to taste death again. It's canonized. What I love about the Old Covenant, it's much like the Abrahamic Covenant where God puts Abraham to sleep God goes through the sacrifice. God makes a deal with God, and it wasn't based on Abraham's performance. So he said, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That seed comes along. Gabriel announces it. Mary delivers it. He goes to the cross. And as he's on the cross, it's like the Son of God to God the Father making a deal. God said unto God, my Lord said unto my Lord. I know you've read that, Psalm 110. My Lord said unto my Lord. Hebrews chapter 6, God said unto God, and they're making a covenant, and you and I are out of the picture. Why? Because it's all based on the one who performed the covenant to keep all the conditions of the covenant, and you and I are excluded from that. We just enter in, and here's the fine print you get. Inheritance, forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life. It's like you get this will in this testament that you didn't even read, you're like, holy cow, I get that? Because of my rich uncle? No, because of King Jesus. <laughs> right? You get everything based on, and you were put to sleep like how Abraham was put to sleep, and you enter into a covenant that God made with God, and you get all the benefits of it. Amen. That's kind of good news. Now, Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses the new covenant. Verse 11, for what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more that is permanent have glory. I already read that. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. And another translation says we use a great plainness of speech. We just say things in the simplest way possible so you could understand this good news. Not like Moses would speak, who would put a veil over his face, Oh, they were the first maskers, right? <laughs> Moses. It's introducing us to a curse, the mask. So that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He wanted to conceal like its temporariness, I guess. But their minds were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted uh, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil is over their hearts. They just see, it's like they only see, you know, 613, thou shalt, thou shalt not, 
feast day, holy day, clothing, dietary laws, no pig, no pork sandwich, no, no barbecue. Do not go to Texas. Darn it! <laughs> they only see through that veil. But look at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's like the veil stays and they turn and they see Jesus. And when they turn, they can't see Jesus. So when they turn and the veil's removed, they're able to see the Lord. And here's the benefit of that. Verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Does that seem like the opposite of bondage and condemnation, guilt and a curse? So when you turn to the Lord, you get freedom. And you get His life, which He was the curse for you. He took the condemnation and the curse so you could experience his life and his love and his liberty and his freedom. But people fight against this because they're like, no, you can't tell people that. You've got to manipulate them or control them or guilt them or shame them. And so you put them back here. And they don't see Jesus. And they don't see liberty. And they don't see life. And they don't see freedom. They see condemnation, death, guilt, and shame. And they're religiously manipulated. You know, that's the, probably the largest part of the world's population is still looking through some sort of veil. Now look at verse 18. And we all, ye all, y'all, with unveiled face, because you've turned to the Lord, you're beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. This is really good news. So you turn from something that could only conform you, right? The law, perform, conform, perform, conform. And you turn from the Lord, or you mean you turn from the law to the Lord, and here's what happens. You start this trans transformative process. Remember, remember Nicodemus? If Nicodemus came to church right now and he's like, what, you can't go into your mom's stomach a second time, Apollo. You, you're out. You can't go back in. You can't do that. And we'd be like, Nicodemus is lame. He's an uneducated Jew. Away with you, right? But you see Nicodemus a second time. He's like, well, are we to condemn Jesus? Doesn't the law even say he's using it against them? I don't think we should be too quick to judge and to throw stones. Um, and then he's like, puts his money where his mouth is. He's given loads of his resources. Uh, where your treasure is, your heart is also. So he's definitely showing where um, his heart is. And it was with Jesus. So when, when we're beholding the Lord, not the law, we're being transformed and we're going through this process of growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And we're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And he that's at work in you will be faithful to complete it. And it says, and we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's like Nicodemus. For this comes from the Lord who is that spirit. Trust the Lord in that process. You might be easy to judge someone like, oh, they got the long hair and they threw their beer out before they came to church and they said a few cuss words during testimony time. And I'm not saying all that's good and right. I'm just saying like, give someone some space if they've received the Lord and give yourself some space because if they're beholding the Lord, then they're going to be transformed from glory to glory. And they're, they're going to, as they behold the Lord and spend time with the Lord and, and 
you become like what you behold. It's just natural. You become like what you behold, um, and they will start to look more and more like the image of Christ the more and more they behold them. But if they're so confused with the letter of condemnation and death, you know what? They're not going to be looking at the Lord. They're going to be looking at themselves. How am I? Am I good enough? Do I measure up? I bet I'm better than that person. I bet I've done more laws than that person. And people that behold the law are the most competitive, bitter, angry, unhappy, joyless people you'll ever meet. The religious people are super competitive, and they're judging, and they need to find someone worse than them to make themselves feel better because no one's measuring up. Amen? In in closing here, we are ministers of life, grace, not condemnation, not the curse, not guilt, and not shame, but we're ministers of blessing because we have been blessed. I want you to to see this. Because in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 uh, and 29, it's talking about the blessings and the cursings the fine print of you saying, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to do the law. I'm going to do it. Okay, good luck to that. You'll be the first one to pull it off if you can, um, besides Jesus. But I want you to see Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. So in the Old Covenant, you've got to achieve those things. In the new covenant, you receive those things. But you have all of those things, not some of them, not most of them, all of them, because of the conditionality that if you have Christ, you have all of God's blessings. You know how we have all the blessings? Because we have all of the blesser. We have all blessings because we have in our hearts all of his fullness. We have all of the blesser himself living in us. That's why we have all the blessings, because we have all of the blesser. So, we equally cannot and will not be cursed because Jesus became a curse for us. He took the condemnation that we should have received. He took God's wrath for sin that we should have, or that we do deserve. There was no more condemnation, there's no more curse, and there's no more wrath left over for us because if you believe the cross, you believe that it's good enough. It was all poured out on Jesus, the curse of the cross. He became cursed so that we could become blessed. Amen. He became cursed so that we could become blessed. He had to remove it so he could give it and we could receive it. Next week, Lord willing, when we're in John, we'll see that blessed statement that changed the course of human history as far as they understand relationship with God, where he said to the woman at the well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Until then, though, let's just kind of conclude with these thoughts. In conclusion... Look, if you're not a Christian, you can freely accept or reject God's grace gift of life and Christ if you want to, but why would you? In a sense, salvation is free to us, but it costs Christ his life. And I guess some, some logic here, what have you got to lose, right? If it doesn't cost you anything and it costs Jesus everything, he paid 
with his life, and you get everything, you get all the blessings, you get removed from the curse because he became the curse, there's no more condemnation left for you because he took the condemnation, and he wants to pour into you his life, his love, all of his blessing in you, and he wants to give you a promise in heaven with him forever, just based on your faith in him and what he's done, and you say like, no, I'm good. I'll just, I'm going to keep trying to do it by myself under the law or religion. I guess when you're worn out and you're tired and you, and, you, and you see yourself as not being able to achieve it, then you'll be able to receive it. But maybe if you're there today and you said, I've never received Jesus. I'm tired. I want to receive this free gift. I'd encourage you to do that today. Just receive him into your heart. It's a, it's a grace gift. If you are a Christian, you're a minister of life. You're a minister of the Spirit. You're a minister of liberty. You're a minister of the new covenant. Let's go be the church that sets people free. Let's go be the church that loves people as Christ has loved us. Maybe it's the third bullet point down. If you're a Christian, you are a minister of life, the Spirit, liberty, and the new covenant. Second Corinthians is all about that. I'm just encouraging and challenging you, if you would. Whatever the Lord's put on your heart, he's put on your heart. But if I could leave you with that challenge, maybe ask yourself this week, kind of what Brian was saying in Sunday school as well, like uh, pray for an opportunity, not only to share your faith, maybe to display your faith as a minister of life, of the new covenant. You're a minister of the Spirit, not of the letter that kills but of the Lord that gives life. Go be a life giver, right? Be a bondage breaker. Be someone that tells someone the truth and they believe the truth and the truth will make them free. Go be a, like a truth teller, right? So let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the church. I pray if there's someone here that's never received you into their heart and life that they would receive you into their heart and life and that they would know that when they pass from this life to the next, that they would be eternally yours in your family, receive the inheritance, enjoying heaven uh, uh, with you throughout all of time and eternity. And for those of us that are Christians, Lord, that have named your name, like Nicodemus, I just pray that we keep continuing to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, but that also that we continue to show that we are ministers of life. We're all ministers, um, I guess, employed by you, Lord, and empowered by you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.